This is Past Perfect, CU Medieval Radio's program on medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Hello there, this is Christopher Melke, and you are listening to Past Perfect. This is CEU Medieval Radio show in medieval and early modern history and culture in association with Civil Radio FM 98. We're joined today by Dr. Felicitas Schmieder. Dr. Schmieder is a full professor of medieval history and chair of the History in Pre-Modern Europe at the Fernuniversität in Hagen. Uh, she is also a recurring visiting professor at Central European University in Budapest. Thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Schmieder. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> All right, so it's very interesting having you here because you have such a wide range of um, research interests, and I thought that in organizing the show today that we'd go from very sort of um, material on the ground things to very conceptual things later on. So I wanted to start by asking you a little bit about uh, your research on medieval German towns. For instance, I understand that you have a volume um, recently about the city of Frankfurt am Main. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that? Well, um, I like to. <laughs> I am myself from Frankfurt, so it was an easy decision to do some work on Frankfurt in the Middle Ages, especially since not many people have worked on that. As you may know, many of the German urban archives have been destroyed sooner or later in history. An important part of the medieval archive at Frankfurt has been destroyed in the Second World War. So it is always tricky to answer the usual questions, but I wanted to do it, and so I decided to do it in a way which is not directly approaching the usual questions, but is taking up church in the city. I see. Usually, in at least in German urban history, but I guess that's true for European medieval urban history in general, the church is taken as an obstacle for the development of the urban burghers and their self-ruling mm-hmm. and their self-decisions because the church and the clerics had their own rights and their own law courts. And so that was usually taken as an obstacle, and I tried to take it as a productive concurrence Mm -hmm. in the town, which fortunately produced texts, which produced archival material. And this archival material is not destroyed. Oh, I see. And so I think I could show how in this working normally against each other, both sides developed their legal approaches and developed something like a late medieval urban community. And in the end, of course, that's another topos in the history, is that the urban setting was the birthplace of the modern state. And so somehow the modern state came out of the concurrence between church and And urban authorities. Well, that's interesting. And you, you touch on a lot of things that, you know, one encounters in studying medieval urban history, the fact that usually the king ended up being a favorite of the townspeople because the townspeople wanted rights. The nobles or the church didn't want to give them rights, so they appealed to the king and he said, I like you folk and you make me money. I mean, it's a very simplified view, and I think that it's interesting seeing that there's different approaches to this very cut-and-dried, easy model of, you know, pro versus con. You're absolutely right. The usual thing is that you have the urban setting put into a environment of the feudal basics, which came from the early and high Middle Ages, and then 
in this the towns and the urban communities developed. But in Germany, things were much more multiplied mm -hmm. as in many other European regions. Frankfurt, for example, was already a town of the king. I see. So they could not use the king against anybody else. At the same time, the king as lord is a wonderful thing because he's normally not there. <laughs> he's normally far away. But at the same time, you can use him. You can use his I authority see. to push back any more local authority that, well, wants to rule the town. And But, of course, also in Germany you have the bishop's towns. Yes, And absolutely. that is especially the situation you were talking about, that if the bishop is in the town and the townspeople don't want to be absolutely dependent from the bishop, first of all they try to push the bishop out and to keep him out it is very useful to have the king on your side. Yes. And that <laughs> happened in Germany as well, but more in the older towns. So the older towns... Germany is, in terms of the cultural development, of the urban development, of civilization, divided in two parts. Mm -hmm. You have the old Roman region, and you have the regions that have never been touched by Roman civilization, or only so briefly that mm -hmm. Roman civilization didn't last. And so the Rhine and the Danube usually are the borders, and the bishop towns are the old Roman towns on the line of the Rhine and the Danube. Yes, I see. So, and these are getting rid of their bishops with the help of the king, usually. How interesting. And the point that I find really interesting is that rather than seeing the church as an impediment to urban development, you see this conflict between church and sort of proto-urban mm -hmm. groups is, is creating growth of some sort. How does that manifest itself in Frankfurt, for instance? It manifests itself usually on two fields. First of all, you have the clerics in the town, living in the town. And many of the clerics are only of a very low grade. Um, you have several hierarchy steps in clergy, and yes. you are already a clergyman if you are on a very low level, but you can still marry and you wear normal clothes and you live among the normal population. But in, in times of conflict, you have your own court. So you get in a bar and you get into trouble with your neighbor and you get into a fight uh, and that the neighbor really hurts you. And it turns out you cannot really... Uh, put him into court because he's a clergyman and oh, so he can't. And that is the very low level. Mm -hmm. But on higher levels, it has to do with practically the question how much can the urban authority, the council, so the, the, the elected or however representing the burghers, the council, really rule the whole town territory if part of the people and part of the territory is just out of secular control, protected by old Roman imperial law that it is a clerical territory, clerical people, and they are simply exempt from Untouchable. any... And of course that gets into trouble. You know, if townspeople, normal burghers have to pay taxes and pay have to pay toll and have to pay all these things if they want to sell their products, the people who are clerics partly also produce things and mm -hmm. can sell them without tax. And you can imagine that the townspeople weren't very happy about that. Right. And the council that didn't get the taxes wasn't very happy about that. Mm -hmm. And that is a lot of conflict. But since there are the, the legal framework, which you cannot simply get rid of, 
you have to negotiate and you have to try and you have to struggle. And these struggles were partly, well, violent. <laughs> <laughs> they were partly on paper. Yes. <laughs> they were including authorities from outside of the town up to emperor or king and pope. And that created a lot of written documents. And that means you can see how these things were negotiated. And in Frankfurt, for example, and that is now not typical because in German towns of the importance and of the amount of people and, and territory and so on of Frankfurt, all the towns are different. So you usually cannot take any conclusions from one to the other town. But you have in Frankfurt, in the end, clerics who are burghers of Frankfurt. That is the way the council more or less wins mm -hmm. the battle, at least until the end of the 15th century. And then, of course, the Reformation changed the whole pattern. I see. So because if, if you don't have a clergy anymore that is Catholic and that is powerful, then things change. But in the end of the 15th century, the Council of Frankfurt had more or less taken the clergy under its power. So that was the sort of compromise that had been reached with the clergy before the Reformation then? I would say it's not a compromise, but the <laughs> clergy see. lost the battle. Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, they compromised on the way to that. But then, On the way they lost. <laughs> of course, who is protecting the clergy? Mm -hmm. Normally the bishop. The bishop was in the nearby town of Mainz, and the bishop needed money, and Frankfurt had money. And ah. So in the end... Uh, it was a clear cut, and the clergy was paying taxes, and the clergy was... Well, the, the legal issues weren't entirely clarified, but most of the at least lower clergymen were then burghers, and then Frankfurt won, if you can put it that way, that yes. someone <laughs> is winning and someone is losing. But already before the Reformation in Frankfurt, it was relatively clear that... Yeah. But then, of course, of the higher clergy, they got rid in the Reformation then. I see. That I is see. then gone. Moving in a drastically different direction from, you know, Frankfurt and urban issues, I wanted to talk with you a little bit more about some of the work that you've done on perception in the Middle Ages. Before we start, you know, talking uh, more in depth about your research, I'm very curious um, in terms of the concept of perception. What exactly do you mean by this um, for your research? Well, it is difficult to exactly define that because I prefer to go do the things a little open, mm -hmm. knowing that we always have to bridge our own ideas about things and seeing the world in terms of perception and the one we might find in the Middle Ages, and that we will always find our own ideas in the Middle Ages when looking at the Middle Ages. For me, the important thing about the approach of perception is that I want to know what people were seeing when they were looking at the world at other people, that's my special approach, other people, but also any other thing or anything that is outside of their own everyday experience. Mm -hmm. And I take into account or I try to take into account that what people were seeing or how people were seeing was different from how we do it today. Take an example, and as a historian, usually defining by examples and not so <laughs> much by theoretical approaches, when it came to foreign people, there was the idea in the medieval Latin West, at least, and that's my field of expertise. There was, but I don't doubt that this is true also for other places, but I'm just restricting myself to that. There was the conviction that God has 
created the world and that it is basically completely described. Mm -hmm. So that if medieval people were looking into the Bible, into additional books, into commentaries on the Bible and onto several legends and traditions, commentaries by the church fathers, when they were looking at antique traditions and so on, that they could find it all. Mm -hmm. So, first of all, when we go abroad, we might expect to find something new, or at least that's our conviction that we think we find something new. Medieval people were basically trying to find what they already knew. I see. That's a basic difference between going there and trying to describe what you find. Although you are always comparing with your own experience, that's clear. You cannot describe anything without the relation to yourself. But today we are trying to describe the people. While in the Middle Ages they were trying to identify the people. I see. And that is a basically different approach. It might come to the same result. It might even use the same modes of description. But it is basically different concept. And so it was much more difficult for medieval people to realize that they had actually met someone that hadn't been described anywhere and that they had actually reached a place that had never been reached by any of the people they had read about or the people who had written the evidence that was there for the medieval people. So perception in that way means how open are you looking or how restricted are you looking. This sounds already too much biased because open seems to be positive and restricted (laughs) seems to be negative. But it is our ideal to find something new. And it is not the medieval ideal to find something new. But uh, they want to... They want to make sure that the world is in order. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so everything has to have its place and has to be described within this world order. So that's a big difference, I think. Were they informed of this world order just by the Bible or by ancient sources like Pliny as well, in your opinion? Especially Pliny was quite well known. Mm -hmm. Not all the texts we would identify today were known to them as texts from antique sources. But you find a lot of mixture. Mm -hmm. Again, in the written evidence we have, you find a lot of mixture of information that you cannot trace to a certain source. So we have to consider they were reading, maybe not Pliny or any other Latin antique writer, that's even more true for the Greek ones, directly, but they were reading the second or third or fourth usage of that. So there's a genealogy of knowledge. A genealogy of knowledge which we can only rarely trace. I see. But the important thing is it was old knowledge. Yes. And it was therefore good knowledge. This is really interesting because in, in terms of looking at going to new places and expecting to find old things, um, how does this perception manifest itself in Marco Polo? Because from your resume, I see that you've done quite a bit of work on him. Um, Well, considering that we do not have Marco Polo directly, Mm. uh, it is difficult to tell. But I will try to... It's it's actually a very good example because you can make clear how these conditions of perception I was describing were changing when they were challenged time and again in the late Middle Ages when the Europeans were getting much further than they had ever been 
before. And Marco Polo obviously went to China. Mm-hmm. I'm quite convinced that he did. And he had a lot of things to tell. And he must have told them time and again. And then in a war between Venice and I think Genoa, I'm not entirely sure, there was one of these wars. He got captured and was for a time in prison. Mm -hmm. And he was imprisoned together with a Pisan poet, Rusticello da Pisa. And him, he told his story. And he, this Rusticello, wrote the story down. I see. So, firstly, it is possible that Rusticello did not understand everything the way Marco Polo had seen it, because Marco Polo was the eyewitness, mm-hmm. and Rusticello, as far as we know, never left Europe. I see. So, firstly, we have someone who understood what Marco Polo was telling. Marco Polo was telling things he had seen, but how do you understand foreign things when you have never seen them yourself? Mm-hmm. Secondly, Rusticello may have adapted things he didn't understand and may have given them a new context and an explanation. Mm -hmm. And thirdly, and that is probably the most important thing, he may have asked. He may have asked Marco Polo, but didn't you see this and this and this? So there were traditional things Marco Polo may not have been talking about because he didn't see them, like the gates of Alexander the Great, behind which Alexander once enclosed some rotten people who threatened his army and whatever. Everybody was expecting to see these gates. There have been identifications and everybody wanted to know, or oh, take the the realm of the priest King John. Mm-hmm. It was expected to be in the East. Marco Polo didn't tell about it, so Rusticello yes. must have asked. So in the book of Marco Polo, this priest is you can find it, although Marco Polo can never have actually met this priest. Is that Prester John? That's Prester I John. See, okay, right, I'm yes. sorry. Yeah, it's it's Prester John. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's. I I was just well, directly it's, it's translating an, from. It's from an the archaic uh, way of spelling his name, I think, and it's. So that's exactly what what we have with this book, and that we have basically with all the texts. Mm-hmm. Any European who went to Asia in that time had his knowledge, his, uh, not his or her, because it was basically those who were telling were, were men, had his knowledge, and that knowledge was very different. Uh, if you have a cleric, a, 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 an educated cleric, or you have a, a, the young son of a, of a merchant, that's a, a different story. But then in writing it down, it changed again. So again, to research perception is very difficult in a direct way. You have to try to find ways to look at it through the written, written in a European language, written partly in the case of Marco Polo, for example, by people who have never been themselves abroad. Mm-hmm. But anyway, you find certain ways of dealing with the foreigners, with the foreign people, with the foreign animals, with the foreign towns and so on that show you how they were looking at it. And it shows you how, uh, during the late Middle Ages, it changed. Not so much the perception, but the openness and the readiness to accept, well, maybe there is something we have never seen before. There's just a big pressure of all these new things. That's one of the things I find most interesting about the Middle Ages, though, is the fact that it's seen as a thousand years where nothing was going on. But in reality, it was constant and very big changes to society for 
people from all walks of society, that there were constantly new discoveries or rediscoveries, and that this is, for me, it's one of the reasons I find this period so interesting, is how much change is going on at such a scale. Absolutely. And I think the idea that there could have been thousand years of stagnation is in itself a little strange if you consider people. I mean, people yes. are people and, and they, they will always try to change things. But then there is this, firstly, if it is thousand years ago or 500 years ago, it seems to be a long time ago. And then what is another 500 years? But if we think back 100 years and see how much oh has my changed, goodness, yes. And there are even periods in the Middle Ages when the people themselves thought things are changing tremendously quickly. And oh, yes. Everything is just, not, not just it has been better earlier, but they were always saying, as any generation says, in our youth, it was much better. But yes. then there are periods when it was really changing so quickly that people got afraid of, well, normally they got afraid, but sometimes they also took it as an opportunity to, to actually move and we were talking about the urban development, and I mean, towns in terms of building communities that is self-organized and self-responsible and self-governing, that is an entirely new thing. Yes. So it's, for Europe, it is an entirely new thing, and it develops in the Middle Ages. So, And the next topic we will be talking about is even more about this kind of the feeling that change is, is on, and I think that's... Um, they panicked, but they adjusted. Time and again, they adjusted. And this is really what is fascinating, especially if we're talking about perception about the late Middle Ages, because things were so much... It took them 200 years, but then <laughs> they were ready to actually explore the world. <laughs> All right. So had a very interesting talk so far. And in your last section, you mentioned something about how people are handling the changes. And uh, I wanted to talk to you in this portion about the end of the world. You've done a lot of work on um, eschatological sources, which um, for the listeners back home, would you mind um, just saying a sentence or two on what exactly eschatology is uh, in in the literature and in the I'm Middle Ages? trying to do it in one or two sentences, yes. Oh. <laughs> um, Christianity, and not only Christianity, but in this case, this is the most important believes that the world has been created mm -hmm. and will finish at a certain point. God will destroy it again. And since this destruction is very interesting for the living people, especially if it is imminent, and is lying in the future, so they don't know anything about it, they want to know something about it. Obviously, in the Bible, there are several Portions that are talking about what is going to come, not the least the so-called Apocalypse of John, so mm. the last book of the Bible. And the big problem was from the Bible, people knew how the things would end, mm -hmm. but they didn't know when this would start. And so they tried to interpret. Firstly, there was the opportunity to interpret the Apocalypse of John, saying, well, actually, it has already started. So there are signs that it has already started. That is one possibility. You can also interpret world history following the apocalypse. You can take other prophecies from the Bible, from the New Testament, but especially from the Old Testament, because there was also the idea that the Old Testament is a typological way of prophesying the life of Christ and everything else. So in the Old Testament, you already have 
the life of Christ prophesied. And then you can say, well, if the Old Testament and the New Testament are sticking together that way, then maybe also the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the time of mankind shortly before the end. This is a three-step history. Mm -hmm. And then you can read any biblical prophecy for your own time. And since that usually isn't enough, and prophecy is possible and God can gift certain people with the gift of prophecy, uh, you have later prophets who fill these gaps and try to prophesy more specifically and more concretely what is going on and what is going to happen and for which signs you have to look out. And then, of course, normally in times of crisis, in times when everything seems to break down or is in upheaval and um, nothing seems to be like it has been a generation ago Mm. or even 10 years ago, then people start to worry and need explanations. Yes. And obviously, prophecy or prophets and interpreters of older prophecies or writers of newer prophecies can try to provide this kind of explanation. Well, and it's funny because like even even today, like every couple of months or so, there's, you know, a group of people out with signs, you know, saying the end of the world is nigh, the aliens will destroy us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or the Mayan or the, the, Maya, the Mayan one was, I think, the biggest one um, in, uh, in lately, recent memory. Lately, yeah. We had, in we recent had, memory. Um, well, I'm not so sure about recent memory. The oh. year 2000 was, oh, that is a, true. was a really important okay. thing. And you are I American. I mean, if you have so many American sects like the Waco sect yes. and so on, yes. who were all... And that is, of course, a phenomenon which has gone lost in most parts of Europe but beyond, not only in America, but also in the Islamic world, even in Russia, things like that are more popular or still popular today. And the Waco people had a prophecy yes. and were sure that the world would end. And this is why they killed each other, yes. or themselves, whatever. And things like that happened also in the Middle Ages or in the early modern period. There is not so much difference. Uh, My question is, what sort of signs did they see as um, hints that the end of the world had already started? Also, that is very different. Firstly, you can have blood rain and falling stars on Mm -hmm. the the sky and and blood rain can always be... uh, People try to explain what people saw when they said the sky was raining blood. Mm -hmm. But uh, I mean, it's not so important what actually was behind it, but that people were telling it. And it is similar to everybody sees an alien. So signs of that type, the momentary floods would be a wonderful apocalyptic sign because the whole world will drown at some point. It's a very salient point because the Danube right now in Budapest is at record highs at the moment. And not only in Budapest, but also in in, In in Germany Germany, where I come from. Austria, yes. So... And that alone would not be accepted as apocalyptic sign, but it is the second flood within about 10 years, and it is obviously getting more frequent. Yes. And things getting more frequent, and things somehow, and then not only the flood, but at the same time it is getting very hot. So you Mm -hmm. have very hot periods, flooding periods, volcanoes are breaking out, and so on. If Mm -hmm. you take all this together, tsunamis are uh, killing people, If a community, and in this case, in the globalized world, the community is much bigger, but if a community gets the impression that the signs are getting more frequent Mm -hmm. and the time between the signs is getting shorter and shorter, Mm -hmm. this 
as such is usually taken as an apocalyptic sign. I see. So if the problems are getting worse and worse, that is the one possibility. And when more and more people are there, more and more people are hungry, like it happened in the late uh, 13th century in, yes. in Italy. And more and more people are without work and more and more people are having trouble to keep their family and keep their houses and so on. That is a definite apocalyptic sign because humans like to think that there must be a meaning to things of that happening and God wants to show us that the end is near. The idea is not so much, and that is now my approach, the idea is not so much, well, we see the end is close, okay, let's just kill each other, or let's just sit there and wait until everything is over. But usually prophets try to use that and say, look, this is God's last warning. Mm -hmm. Now go on and do something. Because some prophets say, then you can postpone the end. I because see. if God sees that you are reforming, that you are getting better, then he might postpone the end. The second possibility is, and if God doesn't, postpone the end, then at least you, as a reformed Christian, will be on the good side at the Last Judgment. So these are the two So it's sort of like a win-win situation. It's a win-win situation, <laughs> but I think the interesting thing is when you trace the development of medieval prophecy that it is much more interested in the time between now and the end than what is going to happen after the end. After the end, that's basically clear and you have to live good so that you are on the right side, well. But the interesting thing is, what can you do now? Yes. Okay. So that's a, a language of reform, and it's a, a political language that I usually say. So end time is used, the eschatology, the, the, the apocalyptic prophecy, so the prophecy about the end is, is actually not so much a prophecy about the end, but is future planning. I see. And uh, who's mostly using these apocalyptic tropes? Um, yeah, that's <laughs> not 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 so easy to say who is using it as in terms of the prophets, because the prophecy and their interpreters are very, very frequently anonymous. Oh, yeah. We have some, there is a very famous name, which is Joachim of Fiore, who lived in the second half of the 12th century in southern Italy. He is a very famous, and he is the archi-prophet in the West. From then on, he prophesied the end in the 13th century, and there will be another thousand years after the first Antichrist. In these thousand years, only the best people will live, and among them, and the organization, basically, that is caring for the people is a last order of saints, a mm -hmm. clerical order, monk order of the saints. And the Franciscans interpret them themselves as being this order. I see. And so there is a huge amount of Franciscan prophets in the late Middle Ages then. And who is using it in terms of audience is all sorts of people, but not the least the powerful. Because, you know, a normal person doesn't have much trouble to do the right thing, to get on the right side of the last judgment. But the powerful person can easily do the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. So they needed it, and they listened to it, and they even sponsored it. I mean, there have been prophecies written on demand, and nevertheless believed, because the power of the prophet was... A, it was um, so it, great. Yeah, it was sacred, and it was, uh, well, a gift from God, and so it was working. 
We've had a very interesting talk so far, and I just wanted to ask you um, in our last couple of minutes about what sort of projects you're working on at the moment. Well, since I am on my sabbatical, I'm working on the prophecy ideas and that I'm trying to find out something more about this prophecy as a political language. But one other project especially interesting me in the moment, and that is the question of medieval world maps that are actually also very deeply connected to the prophetic problem. Because on medieval world maps, you don't only have the world in its space, but also in its time. So you have uh, historical and biblical episodes painted in this world map. I see. And it is not only the creation and Christ's birth and Christ's death, but also end time. You always have Antichrist and Gog and Magog, so the peoples of Antichrist are painted or are positioned somewhere on these world maps. And it is a very interesting, again, putting together perception and this idea of time, of time with a beginning and an end. It's an interesting way of representing space if you do it intermingled with time and intermingled with this biblical history and the history of the world. And that is something that, again, on the field of perception, that interests me because usually people say they are not realistic. These medieval world maps are wrong representations of the space. It's just not the right way to represent Europe and so on. It's just not the right thing. And I think we have to get to a different notion of realism mm. because it is very realistic in terms of medieval perception and the medieval ideas of space and time. Undoubtedly. Well, Dr. Schmieder, thank you very much for joining us today. It's really been a pleasure having you here. Thank you very much. And for our listeners back home, we thank you so much for tuning into our show. Be sure to listen to us on the web at www.medievalradio.org. Be sure to send us an email to medievalradio at ceu.hu. And be sure to like us on Facebook as part of our One Million Medievalist campaign. Thank you so much for listening to us.